Welcome to Handmaids and Harless, a weekly podcast that explores both the Handmaid's Tale and Harlots series produced by Hulu. This podcast is marked as heavy spoilers, as it will include episode-by-episode synopsis, as well as analysis of both shows and their written source material. The textual references for this podcast are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Miss Atwood's book and forthcoming second installment, Testaments. Textual references for all Harlots-related podcasts will be taken from Hallie Rubinold's book, The Covent Garden Ladies, Pimp, General Jack, and the Extraordinary Story of Harris's Lists, as well as interviews, essays, analysis, and other available materials regarding Harlots by Hulu. Join me, Ray, and my co-host, Kay, as we watch, read, and discuss these two provocative and intelligent stories. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my soul is in agony. And how does it feel with the white flag in your fist? How does it feel to have two faces? How does it feel with your God strapped to your wrist and leading you on such a chase? You've got one set of words for him and you've got another set for me. You're going to feel mystified when you're identified. Don't worry, kid. It's not real. This episode opens with June standing on a street corner looking up at light posts and from which several Marthas hang. It is here that she discusses the nature of the lies, political and otherwise, that Gilead tells both themselves and everyone else about the realities there. She discusses how these women were not martyrs because they couldn't be martyrs. Martyrs could be followed, but they were branded as heretics. June wonders if she's a heretic or if she's only stupid. She's joined on that street corner by Alba and Janine. They spend a few moments discussing the Marthas and then they are broken apart by a guardian. June returns home to the Lawrence's, unpacks groceries while she watches Beth and Sienna hover over Lawrence, taking care of him as he has tea. When Beth returns to the kitchen, she and June discuss what June saw in town. They discuss where Cora ended up. Neither of them know. Sienna is called back to the dining room, who asks to clean up after Lawrence. And then Beth returns to the dining room after saying to June that it seems that Lawrence is testing them and that everyone is expendable. As Beth is pouring Lawrence more tea, the doorbell rings and June asks if she should answer the door. Her and Lawrence have an interchange. He asks her if, if she's competent and understands the moral ramifications of having a handmaid answer the door. She does not answer him and he decides that she's not competent. The commanders begin to arrive at the Lawrence home. June is lighting candles. She is watching from a seat in the dining room. Fred enters the home. Her and Fred have a tense at first reunion and then it smooths out as June uses all the buttons she knows how to push on Fred trying to get him to help her figure out how to deal with Lawrence. Lawrence watches this exchange from the other room. He comes in. He breaks it up. He makes some somewhat uncouth comments and then him and Fred return to the drawing room. At this juncture, our POV changes and we find Serena having a cigarette seated on a log on the beach, we assume facing the ocean, perhaps on Cape Cod or somewhere else. 
seaside in Massachusetts. She's joined there by her mother, whom it seems she has a fairly good relationship with. However, Serena's mother pressures her into joining a prayer meeting in the afternoon. Our perspective once again changes once more in Serena's childhood home. She is having a dress altered by Rita so that she can wear it to the prayer meeting. Her mother comes in and tells her how lovely she is. Returning us to the Lawrence home to give us the impression that these two gatherings are taking place simultaneously. June is in the kitchen with Beth. Sienna enters and lets June know that Lawrence has requested for her to come and pour drinks because apparently Sienna is too slow at it. We find out, of course, that that's not the case. When June enters the sitting room, the commanders are discussing their plans for Chicago. Nick is there in a commander's uniform. There is discussion of a salvaging. Lawrence makes an argument against it, saying that the labor would be useful, that there may be fertile women and other things for them to have. Using June to prove a point and also humiliating June purposely in front of the entire collection of commanders there, he asks June to retrieve a copy of Darwin's Descent of Man off his bookshelf after having asked if she was an editor, proving the point that she could in fact read so the commanders knew she could read. He directs her to the bookshelf and she follows his directions to the letter. Lawrence looks smug. The other commanders find it amusing, but June is most definitely not amused. We return to Serena's mother's home mid-prayer meeting. Serena joins the group of people mid-prayer as they pray for someone's wife who has cancer. The con prayer concludes and Serena is asked to take the center of the circle. They begin a prayer for her. They ask her to read Psalms 6 Two, she does. And then the minister goes on to discuss her marriage and her relationship to Fred in the most biblical terms, reading a Bible quote that suggests that she submit to her husband because that is the correct and right order of the world. Serena is clearly upset by this. She looks to her mother, but she sits there and she suffers it in silence. As if to answer for that scene, we switch perspectives again to Fred. He is clearly speaking to Serena, rehearsing a speech, and we can tell by the lighting and the interior that he's a Jezebel's. In fact, as he finishes, he turns to the woman that he has there for his entertainment and asks her if she thinks it's good. And she tells him, yeah, uh, but maybe he wants to go over it one more time. Clearly, the meeting for the commanders is over. So when we return to the Lawrence house in June, she's bringing tea to Lawrence's study. He is sitting at his desk. It's covered with paperwork. And he seems to be contemplating something. June, having worked out an idea for how to approach Lawrence earlier with her musings about him not liking to be hovered over, that maybe he's uncomfortable with large groups of people, she makes an attempt to initiate a conversation based on this quote-unquote empathy she suddenly has for him. He sees right through this. He sees right through this and he calls her out on it. He plays her a little bit. He acts a little vulnerable. He walks up on her. He seems like he might actually kiss her. And she, of course, is ready for this she expects him to be a man in this situation but then he laughs at her and he walks away and it makes her very angry he goes so far as to drag up june's past something that june probably assumes no one else knows 
that we saw in season one when she chose to stay at work one day when Hannah was ill. He suggests she's selfish, self-centered, immature, and unfit, not useful. She loses her temper. They argue and she calls him out. She states that he must be terrified, that he must be guilt-ridden. With all of the things that have happened as a result of his work, the people that have died, and the rest of it. And she gets into his armor. She manages to create a situation where we can see visibly on his face that he is vulnerable. But it doesn't go unpunished because no good deed does especially not in Gilead. He asks her then to go with him somewhere and he puts her in a car and he takes her to a holding facility where they are keeping women that they have brought back from the front. He informs her that he was able to save them all from the salvagings, but that they were going to have to go to the colonies. She says it's still a death sentence and he says he knows and then he tells her, but five of them I can save to be Martha's and she seems befuddled as to why he's telling her this, except then he says, and it's your choice which five. She refuses. She doesn't want this. She says she doesn't want the blood on her hands. And for a moment, we get a chance to see if June can empathize with him as to whether or not she understands the hell, the particular hell that he finds himself in. Since she called him out on it, she doesn't want it. But he gives her the folders anyway, and they drive back to the home in silence. Our point of view changes once more, and we find ourselves on the seashore at night. It's storming, and Serena is standing out in it. She comes back into the house, is confronted by her mother and her mother's Martha, that she's wet and she should change. Serena's having none of it. She tells the Martha to go away, and then she asks her mother point blank why she humiliated her like that. And her mother goes on to tell her why. She tells her that she has to go back to Fred. She tells her in no uncertain terms that in this world that exists now, Gilead as it is, there's no place in the world for Serena. When Serena cries about the child that she lost, her mother calls her out on that too and says it wasn't even your child to give away. Serena is broken. This moment when she needed mothering and comfort, she receives none. Instead, her mother brings up her level of self-pity, brings up the fact that she and Fred are almost a celebrity couple, a symbol, and that she has to go back to it, whether she wants to or not. Our perspective changes once more, and we're back at the Lawrence house. It's late. Outside is Nick. He's having a cigarette, looking up at the windows. He goes to the door. He knocks. The door is answered. Beth lets him in. And of course, we know there's a history between Beth and Nick, but Beth knows that he's not there to see her. He goes to see June and tells her that he's being shipped to the front. He has to fight in Chicago. June says she hopes he doesn't die, or I believe it was, don't die. She's very cold. She's almost as cold to him as Lawrence was to her. Nick tries to explain himself is vulnerable as Nick usually is and she tells him to leave he leaves but he doesn't get very far he's standing outside the door leaned up against the wall June opens the door takes his hand and brings him back in the room our last set of scenes begins with Serena's arrival at the Lawrence home she and June sit together in the sitting room have a conversation including remembrances of Holly Nicole it is here that Serena says, but she's not my child. June gives her permission to feel like a mother and tells her that only a mother could have done what Serena did. June then uses this small wedge into Serena's weaknesses to encourage her to continue to fight against the oppression of Gilead and to help the other mothers who have been separated from their children like herself. Serena refuses several times, but it seems that there is a glint in her eye 
of understanding what she's being asked to do. And June tells her that they are stronger than maybe they think they are. The scene then moves on to June speaking kind of in her head or whatever to her mother sitting in a motive sunlight somewhere, perhaps in prayer in the Lawrence home song that is playing. I think the lyrics are very poignant to the entire episode. You can find those on Google. And Serena herself, we find out in the ocean again, up to her waist. She is breathing heavily. She is crying. She is trying still to cleanse herself of how she feels. When she comes out of the water, Fred is there to greet her. She doesn't greet him. She simply gives him a cursory look and walks away. June, on the other hand, is confronted by Lawrence. She hands him the folders and she tells him that she's chosen who the five women are that will survive. She then goes into Beth in the kitchen and tells her that we have five more Marthas for the resistance and gives a rundown of their particular skills. It is time again for Handmaids and Harlots, and I am your host, Rachel Ray, and this is... This is Kay. And we are going to be discussing episode three of Handmaid's Tale on Hulu today. So if you listened earlier, you heard our run through. So we're just going to get right into the meat today right in to the to the meat so having watched this and doing a little discussing ahead of time we kind of identified four main themes that we feel are integral to this understanding this episode in the rest of the context of the story and i guess we'd like to start with which one do we want to start with why not power okay so let's discuss power because it's probably the easiest one to identify that too yeah um yeah right so where was it what did what's their like first indicator that power is going to be a theme in this one do you think what was your thoughts on it honestly it's the new martha all right sienna because she's proud of the fact that how lawrence is so powerful that they have to come see him but when she got tea or something on her dress and Lawrence kind of nipped at her for not being so clean, she was practically in tears. Yeah, she was. She was. I think that's a, I think that's a good one. I guess I was thinking of it too, from the standing on the street corner. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're like not allowed to like gather in groups (laughs) anymore. Nope. Yeah. I suppose she wasn't without her. She wasn't with her. Um, walking partner either so which was interesting that he didn't tell her to move on <laughs> he just he just got um alma and janine and we're like let's go girl which i love that those two are walking partners now i do too i think janine needs somebody who is kind of like june in that she's like pretty no nonsense but also at the same time is kind and alma is kind oh yeah Absolutely. So that's good because Janine gets herself all worked up and she's not, as we all have discussed, she's kind of like in a constant state of absorbing trauma. And so she's just never really quite all together there. Yeah, not quite. So that was one. And then, yeah, what you brought up, I think that was an interesting 
little interplay because I mean we've seen Lawrence be hard on people before, even in um even in season two when he he gets on Cora, right? Oh yeah. And she just says she says fuck you or I don't know, she swears at him. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Um but there was, you know, he clearly, you know, is comfortable exercising his his manly power in that house when he feels it's necessary to do so. Mm. But he also seems to be really comfortable with just letting people make decisions. So long as they too. don't lie to him. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's like his his one big rule that he doesn't like and stupid people, which is really clear. He makes that super clear in this episode more so than we've seen in the past. Oh, absolutely. Cuz he's like really uncharitable even about Fred. And you know, which is funny because I've said on a number of occasions that Fred is not the sharpest tack in the box. He is not. Um and I mentioned I think somewhere that Fred's never had an idea that he didn't get a good idea that he didn't get from Serena. Oh yeah. Or June putting it in his head. Yeah, he's just as dumb as a box of hammers, really. I think he's just gotten away with too much, you know? He's gotten away with yeah, too I much think- about getting uh having other women's ideas be given for him and you know. Do you think he's an interesting contrast to Lawrence, too, in particular about what Lawrence says about how power, where power should reside? I think so. Because, like, Lawrence kind of gives me the impression that he thinks that only smart people should be making decisions. Mm -hmm. Half the reason he let her escape. (laughs) Right. And it's not even that it's gendered. Mm Mm-hmm. He just thinks that only smart people should be making decisions. So he's kind of like an intellectual fascist. As far as we've seen so far. And so he sees Fred and I think he sees Fred and June as like equals intellectually. Yeah. I hate saying that, but it seems that way. Absolutely. So that's a good one, that power one. But then there's the other power one. Serena still has, like her mother has this power over her. Absolutely. It's it's just this black hole of all of Serena's strength and that armor that she wears. There's just nothing she can hide from her mother. Yeah. Her mom just like got a hook right into her psyche. Mm-hmm. Knew right where to go. Oh, yeah. And June, of course, has power over Fred. June could blink and have power over Fred, honestly. I know. It's like... It's interesting, that relationship. I think she kind of misses having that power. I think she does, too. I think she liked it when the playing field was even. Yeah. But Lawrence is going to expect a whole lot more of her, as we find out. You know? A lot more of her. And I think that's another interesting thing that we, we didn't really talk about earlier when we talked about all that stuff that happens between him and Lawrence, or her and Lawrence, the discussion about the through the five Marthas and, and that, but there is something to be said for what I think Lawrence is also trying to communicate to her was, was that part of the reason that power corrupts absolutely is that the decisions that the powerful are left with are never going to be easy ones. No. And it's what he showed her straight up with the whole, well, you choose who lives and dies. Yeah. 
you think this is a fucking cakewalk and I wanted this or that, you know, you know, you're going to shame me and make me feel bad. And she does. I, I've seen people say on Reddit that they didn't think that had any effect on him, but it clearly that did. The, her attempt to seduce him? No. No, that just amused him more than anything. It, or even amusedly annoyed. Yeah. Him. You know, like, you know, people that make you chuckle, but then you're like, what the fuck? Seriously? Did you think I was that stupid? I love that he calls her out on that. Like, just right there. But, like, when she gets into his armor and pushes his buttons, when she does reveal that she's smart enough, right, to figure him out and see what his buttons are and then push them without fear and be honest when she says what she sees. Then he kind of opens up to her in a different way. Like, then it's, then he wants to share power with her. Yeah. He wants to see yeah. if she can really take it. Yeah. Yeah. I know somebody mentioned, too, in one of the Reddit posts I read, that somebody likened it to the Padawan relationship, right? <laughs> <laughs> And I and I know I requoted that at you earlier when we were talking, but it is sort of like that. I mean, because June does need to start thinking and not just being angry. She can't keep reacting to everything. Yeah, she's got to figure, she's got to start thinking like it's a chess game. And, you know, Lawrence is like, seems to be the like Bobby Fisher of this thing. Because he's playing all of the commanders, really. Because they don't, they're not thinking about what he's thinking of is that if I send them to the colonies, that gives them six more months or a year to live and maybe something will happen. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it happened this time. Right? Or if they're salvaged, then they're just gone. Right? And he, he sees that, he sees a waste in resources. Although I think he also makes it really clear that he, at the same time, he sees certain people as more worthy of saving than others. That's why he, that's his justification anyway for sending Emily away. Was that in Gilead, Emily can't do anybody any good. Oh, goodness, no. Because her scientific mind is not put to any use. And he believes that if she was in Canada, she could actually do things that would benefit all of him, humanity, not just Gilead. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's got an intelligence about her and she's she's pretty much got everything that would be what he would, you know, support even without Gilead. Well, right. And if he knows all this stuff about June, one assumes that when he requested Emily, he had this in mind. He requested her to get her out of Gilead mm -hmm. because he had read all of the papers she'd ever written all of the books that she had published. He knew all about her as a professor, her her life as an academic, and understood that she was brilliant because he says she's unnaturally smart. You know, it, he must have been planning that. And it's <laughs> not like, you know, he must have requested Emily. I wonder how many, ma uh, how many handmaids he's taken in. Yeah, right? Like... I just don't know. Like, how could you even explain that many disappearing? Well, and maybe they don't. Maybe they just go like that. The Martha in episode two, they go deeper in. Could, I guess. You know what I mean? This might be like the the training ground. <laughs> <laughs> Being in Lawrence's house. 
And if you lie, you go one way or another. Ah, man, I have a feeling Cora is somewhere in a colony. I just have that feeling. Oof. Yeah, I know. It's pretty harsh yeah. to think about it, but there, there it but is. But they, they all knew that he hates lying. Yeah. And I also liked that the opposite, we got the opposite image of power, too, in this episode when Fred shows up for any of it. <laughs> He's fucking completely been disenfranchised. He sits through that meeting with the commanders unable to say anything, and I'm sure he didn't really like seeing that happen to June, you know? But what is he going to say to Lawrence? Nothing. I mean, he was he was demoted, so what can he do? Right? So nothing. And then he goes to see Serena, the one person he should have some power over at the end of the show, and she's just like, F off. Fuck all time for you, buddy. Yeah, yeah right? No time. I don't need your shit. Get out of here. So I thought that was really interesting. Like, Brian's been completely, like, relieved of any power that he thought he had or deserved. I mean, he, he sat there and bought a woman a Jezebel's so he could practice. And then he couldn't even get out the first words because Serena just completely ignored him again. But I bet he got a hummer. <laughs> okay, too true. He probably did. Because... That boy is just so fucking textbook. He's such a stereotype. He is. Um, he's un he is an unfortunate trope, I think. But at the same time, I think it's interesting because I wonder how else they're going to twist him up and chew him up and spit him out. I think between these two women, he might end up really... <laughs> Huh, suffering for being a fucking Chad. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously. I think he might. I hope so. <laughs> I kind of want to see him suffer. I'm almost more excited <laughs> now about that idea than seeing him hanging on the wall. It's just like watching June and Serena just totally Chad him. Office space him. Right? Oh like my he's a fuck God, that guy. machine. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's some other subtle ways that power is given and taken, too. I mean, <laughs> uh, Beth is not particularly nice to Sienna. No, no, she is not. Poor Sienna. So I feel bad. so bad for her. I, I do a little bit, but she's got to get taken down a peg. I mean, they don't need to have a self-righteous Rita person in the house. They, they don't need an of Matthew. Yeah, they don't need that. They they do not need a off Matthew, as you said, and they definitely don't need, you know, Eden. And <laughs> no, they don't. Well, I hate saying that because I felt bad for Eden. Oh, okay, yeah. I she did. was only a little kid. She really was just a little girl who was raised to be not very sophisticated about the world. She oh, just God, really no. wasn't prepared for what happened at the Waterford House in any in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, Beth is definitely being hard on poor sienna hopefully sienna will like you know get some pluck hope so i mean even rita's getting some pluck in there i know i love rita i still love rita I i'm just gonna say i know it's probably not mentioned at all in any of our notes but i absolutely love that rita made her that little finger 
cover, that yeah. fake finger. And like when she took it off to go into the water, I was like, hey, you put that bag on. Rita made that for you. That's all I had to say about that. I mean, I just thought that that was just kind of... No, it's good. It was, I was like, I know it's a symbolism thing. Put that back on. Rita made that for you. So there's a few of those things. And I like, too, that what we see, too, is a lot more power sharing between women and women's community, which I think we didn't discuss. But that is, of course, basically what June announces at the end of it is what the purpose of the whole thing was. Oh, absolutely. Is that making a community of women, like a culture of women. And so I, I got that. I like some of the other subtle things that build into that, I guess. I love it that they gave her an idealistic thing and maybe she's coming to some grips with her issues with her own mother because they had a fraught relationship in the same way apparently Serena and her mom have a fraught relationship. But in a weirder way, like... Her, like, Serena's mother seems to be the, you have to follow this now. This is what life is. This is, you can't break from this. Yeah. Well, and then June's mom is like, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's true. She did, she does say fuck the patriarchy, basically. A lot. I, I, I like Holly. I like Holly, too. So that's an interest, those are interesting things. And they definitely see some interplay of power. Everybody's, like, exchanging it. It's like a dirty dollar bill in this episode. It is. It's just flipping around here. It's like you find it in the pants pocket. Except for Fred. He can't even get, you know, he can't get 95 and, he can't even get 95 in chains. Boy's just, like, empty pocketed. He ain't got no power. Nothing. It's not in this episode. No one. Nopalino. And of course, neither does Nick, but Nick's a good guy. Yeah. Tries to be a good guy. I think Nick does. I don't know if, I don't know if we're going to have any more Nick. He's going to Chicago. It doesn't sound I don't know. I don't think they're going to kill him. I'm just putting that out there. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to kill him. I hope they don't, but then again, they, there's supposed to be a season, supposed to be a death this season, I guess. That's well, I there could be plenty of people who'd be dead. Uh, there are plenty of people. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's Aunt Lydia. Oh man, maybe. I, I'm just putting it out there. That's my guess for this, for this season. It's either, it's Aunt Lydia or it's Luke. Right. That's what I'm going to put my money on. I mean, I don't have very much money. I have 98 cents. <laughs> I'll put my 98 cents there. You and Fred. You, me and Fred can just uh, split uh, split the change and we'll see who's right. So we've kind of talked our way through power, I think, fairly. I mean, it touches on everything that happens in this episode. So it's kind of like the overarching one. And we've got the power of intellect, right? The power of anger, the power of righteousness, and the power of community. Like, it's all kind of together it is all swirled all swirled up so we have different kinds of power and then i think one of the other ones that's an interesting one just to like thematically to discuss is reunions there's so there's a many. lot of reunions in this show so many in this episode we have not seen everybody together since episode one and june and fred are reunited june and nick are reunited serena and fred are reunited Serena and June are reunited. So there's a lot of reunion action going on. And they're all interesting interactions between them all as they are reunited. Clearly, despite the fact that she helped somebody steal his baby, Fred is still vulnerable to June's manipulations. Oh, good lord, he, he is. 
he just sucked right into her shit, right? Toot sweet. Uh, I, I think, here, let me check my notes. I, I think I even marked something on there for him. Did you? Let me take a look. Fred, don't talk with the handmaid. There it is. Right? Dude, stop. Like, she's ego fluffing him over and over again. And it's. Yeah. Uh, he, and the mm. best part is that Lawrence is standing in the other room, just like watching this shit go down. And he lets it get just so far. And then he's like, hey. And then he comes in and he shits on them both to remind them both that they don't, they're not a thing. Yeah. It's freaking great. I, I got to give him some real credit for coming in and putting a wet blanket on that party. He seems the king of <laughs> wet blanket. He does. <laughs> I love it. And then we see June and Nick reunited. And this is, of course, our big question. Did they have sex? I'm I'm guessing sex. I am guessing that that's I, happened. I'm thinking that they did. I mean, otherwise, why would they close the door? Right? It's like an insinuation. Yeah. Which I think... Why would they do that if there wasn't some plot point to it? I guess we'll find I, out. She's going to get Prego again. She is. And then... See, I, yeah. Then Lawrence is going to be like, you are a massive idiot. <laughs> yeah, you are. But thanks for making me look good. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for making me look virile and stupid. Virile and stupid. <laughs> so, like, I just love it. I, I think it's going to be interesting because I, I do sort of feel like that's got to have a plot purpose. It's got to have more purpose than Cersei's pregnancy in the last <laughs> in a fucking Game of Thrones. What? Oh, hot take. <laughs> um, so let's just hope. Okay, I'm hoping for eyebrows. We need another baby with eyebrows. Yeah, I was just saying. I think I marked it down here too. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Eyebrows is back. Yeah, really? It, it wasn't even that he was a commander. It wasn't even. It was just Mr. Eyebrows. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so that was like, well... I, I don't know if they uh, meant for this, but there is something I marked down that in the scene mm -hmm. where June is, like, hella pissed at the commanders oh, yeah. all laughing and everything like that, behind her, when she hands him the book, like, right before mm -hmm. she goes down on knee, the painting in the background has a rainbow streak over it, like, painted rainbows. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it could just be a, this looks nice, let's put this here. You never know. I know. These guys... Because they do so much good work. Like, like you know, I fangirled over the visual aesthetics of episode one to the point where I thought maybe someone was going to choke me. But <laughs> it doesn't ever go away. That's in my head. It's just I'm like, maybe not everybody is as into that part of this show as you are. So, you know, I'm trying to stick to the characters' plot lines instead of, oh, pretty place. Anyway. I do love their kitchen, though. I, I do. But I do like the way they set those scenes up. And I, I love to... The dialogue between June when when he's sitting, when Commander Lawrence is sitting at the dining room table and he's trying to drink his tea and read the paper and the girls are hovering like bees. They are. They can't, he's, they she's, can't leave him alone. Well, they're terrified of him. Yeah. It's this. It's not what he wants, but he, it, he has to live with it. It is. It's, it's what he's kind of. He signed up for this shit. He doesn't get to cry about it either. No. Anyway. Oh. So that. Oh, what? About the pills. Oh, yes. So tell us what you found out when you researched. I cannot. Let me actually quick check because I want to give props to whoever it was when I was just kind of scrolling through. I saved it. So if this is you people on Reddit, I, I want you to know that I tried to save things. <laughs> <laughs> My memory is shot like mad. I wrote it down, I think. That's, that's the name of the person. <laughs> I wrote it down, I think. 
That is a great, by the way, some of you guys on the handmaids Reddit have some fucking amazing names. Love your names, guys' names, though it does make me sound a little crazy when I say it out loud, because then it's like, I'm, I'm half waiting for, <laughs> for someone to sit there and say, uh, d- yeah, you wrote it down. Where is it? That, by the way, Mrs. Lawrence is acting, possibly the wives are forbidden from taking medications because Bruce Miller on Twitter said she has a poorly treated case of bipolar disorder. So I got to give my wife props about this because <laughs> I was looking through bipolar drugs and kind of just scrolling through because for, I don't know why, I, I just had to find out which drug she was taking because that's my life now after like four or five pages of nope that's not it and then oh this one's close but it's not quite my wife just drops a red and white tablet uh capsule pill in front of me and goes is that it and i kind of look at her look at it and i'm like no that 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 can't be because that's medication that i take it's venaflaxine it's like venefaxine hydrochloride or something like that. Right. It's used for people who have emotional or social disorders, but it's also used for people with bipolar disorder. So, uh. <laughs> we have found out what Mrs. Lawrence is taking. At least by the color shape of her pill, at the very least. And it, it should be about 150 milligrams because I think lower than that is... Like it's a dual red. It's a completely red tablet. God, can you? Do we care this much? <laughs> People are going to be listening to the end of this and be like, "Kay, what? We care this much?" We'll be like, "Kay, come on, you, you really four pages? Yes, four pages." And then my wife showed me up in a minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> she shows us all up when she shows. I up. know she do. We did find out the mystery pill. And if I'm if I'm Lawrence. wrong, the only other choice I had was a lithium tablet, but that yeah. was peach and white, not red and white. Not red, white, night. You know, and the thing that makes is interesting for me, and I can understand why they're not treating her with lithium. By the way, a lot of people don't know this, but lithium is only really mineable for pharmaceutical use in like two places in the world, and they're neither of them in the United States. Mm, so Gilly, I would probably have a hard time getting that. Yes. A lot of bipolar people would be that are still responsive to lithium would be having a hard time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's kind of like, what do you guys think? Do you think we need help <laughs> getting over these pills? Right. Except that it's, you know, the whole happy, healthy nature, lovey thing they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, the question is like, is she being medications just hard to come by and they don't have it for her all the time? Is that why she's poorly treated? Would she be more responsive to lithium and they just can't get it, which is possible. Is it very at possible. the whim of the underground? And or, and this is something we just, her and I discussed earlier this week, is it possible, just vaguely possible, that the reason that Lawrence is all involved in the underground and tolerates any of this stuff is that he is doing black market dealing to get his wife the medication that she needs. And the only people that he can do that with are Martha's. As we found out in season one, and with Beth in particular, that Beth is a black market operator. Mm -hmm. When she was working at Jezebel's, she was dealing in in contraband and black market materials. Granted, it was hair dye, but it wouldn't be too hard to think that if you're able to smuggle something in, you should be able to smuggle something bigger in. Hey. Well, if you take a look at like historically, like what was going on in Russia before the wall fell. Oh yeah. They were, they were 
smuggling in Coca-Cola and Levi jeans. Very true. I mean, it sounds really mundane. Well, it's but the same as the as the wives getting in hair dye. Yes. And magazines or Serena's cigarettes. Which, by the way, for a second I had to double take to make sure she wasn't token up. No, those are Virginia Slims. Give me a break. I smoked one brand. <laughs> those are Virginia Slims. But yeah, of course you would smoke Virginia Slims or Misty's. One of those little tiny skinny ones. So I just thought it was really interesting that you did all that research to find that out. And then we find it out because she was like, I got to know. I got to know. I needed to know. And right. as soon as somebody, uh, as soon as I wrote it down, I think, was mentioning that Bruce Miller had mentioned that on Twitter, I was like, well, there we go. I'm no longer looking at schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, PTSD, da, da, da. I'm looking specifically for bipolar. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. apparently bipolar can be treated with the same thing as depression, PTSD, da, 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 da. Well, yeah, because I don't want to down talk psychopharmacology too much, but I'm going to talk it down for a minute. <laughs> They just really just shoot pills at you. And if you take one that makes you shut up and quit crying about whatever it is that's bothering you, they figure that's a win. Sometimes. I mean, yeah, that's what's happened for me. They took me off. uh, This is why you don't take them. No, always take your meds. They took me off some and then put me back on it at a lower dosage. So it's. I think it's important, though, to continue to take medications. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know what I mean? I'm not saying, hey, you know. Stop taking your pills. Completely. I, I, I'm not Elizabeth Moss here. I'm not going full Scientologist. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a joke, folks, in case you did. I know. She's got the sarcasms. Um, a little bit. I'm Anyway, but I'm not... I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that, you know, what they don't know, what we still don't know about psychopharmacology is pretty big. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times too, that these medications work on certain illnesses, I think sometimes or groups of illnesses is because those groups of illnesses are probably variations on the same theme. I mean, depression, bipolar, they can have, they can have some lineups. Yeah. Where, you know, in terms of like serotonin, dopamine uptake and, all the rest of it, and they're all affected similarly. So it makes sense. So I'm not suggesting advocating for discontinuing your psychiatrically required medication. Totes, my goats, people. Not saying that, because I'm not a Scientologist. <laughs> not even a little bit. So that's um, an, interest, an interesting thing out of our weird things that we found out about characters in the, in the <laughs> show last week it was like oh look they could do genital reconstructive surgery for women who've had clitorectomies really and now we're like this medication comes in this color because we're nerds we focus on something we do it's a thing those are the reunions there just seemed to be a lot of them and they were pretty tense every single one but i think they all went fairly good for everybody except bread. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck that guy. But not literally. No. You. <laughs> I still <laughs> you. Uh, I'm still like, I told you, I'm scarred. I'm scarred. One day he'll shave off that beard and let you love him again. 
I can't wait until I can like in like twenty years, right before I die, I can watch <laughs> I can watch Shakespeare in Love and not be like ah. uh, one day. All right. So then the next theme that we did, because I'm like working them in terms of not importance, but like length or necessity to describe and explain the ones that are gonna take the most time to talk about. So the next one is a woman's place because we're getting closer to the the heart of the matter. I think that the real deep themes for the show were this week, Mm -hmm. but a woman's place is a big one. Yeah. Ironically, the name of her book. Whoa. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. I'm that good. I just do that naturally folks. (laughs) It's Yeah. So, like, we see it in the very beginning, right? Hovering around a man. A woman's place is taking care of a man. Right? hmm We go next scene, June's in the drawing room, and she's pouring drinks for these losers. And she gets humiliated because a woman's place is not in a room full of men thinking and talking. No. Right? This is the Gilead's view of a woman's place. She doesn't belong in there, despite the fact that she, you know, was an editor, despite the fact that she can read, despite the fact of anything, she doesn't have a place there. And it's interesting how Lawrence talks about women in particular and women's place in society. He says it's, he, what did he say? He said something about it's not so much that they're not. Useful. It's just that they're they come with baggage is kind of what he implied, right? Yeah. That women were more difficult. That's why they a place for them was not at the table. Mm-hmm. Which sounds really Victorian, by the way. It's like a super Victorian view that women could be intelligent, and they mean women went to college. They let women go to school. If you were wealthy enough, you could go to school, at least, you know. Most places, family had old money, could go to school. But it was never intended for you to use that education. Oh, no. It was to go get a man. That was, you know, yeah, to make you capable of good dinner conversation for the level of a gentleman you were going to be married to. And that's like, it just really struck me that way. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> he's he's one of those kind of guys. This isn't like, you know, some weird kinky 50s family thing. This is going all the way back. <laughs> all the way back. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So anyway, so that was one. And then Serena's mother and her. Oh my goodness. She completely shoots yeah. her down to this is your place. Yeah. It was an interesting kind of conversation if you look at it from that that perspective, which I also thought was super interesting because I'm just going to say this. We had this conversation before we started recording, and that is I honestly think that Serena's Joy's mom may well have been one of those people that belongs to a super conservative Christian faith, but who doesn't want to see public prayer in schools, doesn't want to see religiosity overtake public life because they don't believe that their version of Christianity would be honored in that correctly and or they don't believe that it would make it legitimate as a religion, right? If there wasn't any choice, but it was the law 
and that there may have been some some arguments about this between Serena and her at some point before Gilead happened. Because I just get this distinct impression, the way she looked at her and the words she used when she said, you know, she did everything but say, you made your bed, go home and lie in it. Pretty much, yeah. She said, you can't, there's no place for you in this world. Without Fred. Without Fred. This world, meaning this world that Serena and Fred created, there's no place in her without in it without being married to Fred. And that's true. It's true. I mean, she set it up completely for that. Her mom is just like feeding her the hard truth. You you created this monster and and don't cry to me about your baby either, because guess what? I know it wasn't your baby. Mm-hmm. Like her mom's not buying into that whole handmaid's thing at all. Goodness no. She's not. I don't know whether to feel bad for Serena that her mom's a total bitch or to like buy her mom a fucking whiskey coat. I don't know. Because <laughs> these are things that I've been wanting to say to Serena for like ever. Totally. It's just mind boggling. I remember sitting there the episode she lost her finger and going, yeah, how does it feel, bitch? I said that out loud watching that episode. I would not have doubted that. So, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I also am one of the people, the few people on the whole planet, apparently, who thinks that Serena Joy has a, a possibility of making good on all the fuckery of her life. That she deserves a, resum- a redemption arc because I believe that people in general deserve an opportunity for redemption. I mean, there's some things that are irredeemable, but I don't know that she's in that place. And that I see her as analogous to like Phyllis Schlafly and Anita Bryant and Ann Coulter. Mm -hmm. Although I'm going to just give a qualifier here. I would be willing to give up the good things in life for three hots and a cot if I could figure out how to take Ann Coulter out with a car. Damn. Yeah, that's spicy, but don't like her. Not even a little bit. I don't either. (laughs) Not even a little bit. Well, actually, if I could fly a house and land it on her. Like a witch. <laughs> yeah. Ding dong, the bitch is dead. The bitch, oh, bitch. Sorry. Really. Land a house on her ass. That's how I see her is sort of analogous to that. And I'd like to think that if I were that wrongheaded about something and I woke up to it, how wrongheaded I was about something that people would, you know, I have an opportunity to at least fix what I did before everybody just ran off and said hair from the wall drop her in a pool please hope so sorry i got a little excited about you that. did just a smidgen shut up oh. shut up man just shut up stop hating me for love and serena <laughs> <laughs> oh honey <laughs> she's just a way better character than Circe. Oh. She had such hope that it was going to be better. Yeah, well, it just got worse. It did. So let's just hope. Let's just, just like make voodoo dolls to protect this show from the kind of fuckery that happened on Game, Game of Thrones. Anyway, <laughs> A Woman's Place. We get that there. And then we get June's argument, which is really, I think, interesting that it's basically Holly's argument. Yeah, she kind of almost repeated her mother in a great deal. Yeah, that... Women have a place everywhere women are and that women have a right to choose and women have a right to self-determination that women have a right to live without the interference of men, all of which June rolled her eyes at whenever her mother said any of that sort of stuff. Oh, absolutely. She. So I thought that was interesting. Just seemed to kind of 
roll her eyes completely at any time her mom was trying to teach her anything, even if it did sometimes feel a little bit too, like, too pushy, I guess. That's the terminology I'm not trying to think. Strong, she's a woman of strong opinions. Oh, yeah. Isn't it interesting how much June and Serena, the more we get to know them, the more alike they are? Yeah, they are, aren't they? That's the other reason I sort of suspect Serena's mom was not completely down with this whole idea of Gilead to begin with. Think so? It's just a theory, folks. I got nothing to back that up on other than the way her mom handled her. And that's about it. I honestly thought she was going to be a very elderly kind of woman since she was like, oh, I'm going to go and visit her. And I'm like, oh, okay. So her mother is uh, invalid or something or one of the widows that we hear about. And then nope, not whatsoever. No, she's still a very strong and vital woman. And June and... And I like that it's chilling, too, when June says that. And that last scene with her and Serena together, I think we're stronger than we think we are. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's really true. Because that was really what Holly was trying to get across. I think in some respects, that's what even what Serena's mom is trying to get across, is that you're strong enough to do this. Oh, absolutely. And even if it, you aren't, you, it's too late now to change your mind about it. You got to go with, Which, with what you got. Yeah. And make the best of it in whatever way you can. It's interesting how the women talk about what a woman's place is, not as much overtly, although for sure with Serena and her mom, but just in general. And Serena kind of giving this argument back to June that it's not my place to try to save everybody. It's not my place to do those things. And June's like, who else's place is it then? Mm -hmm. Like she's always constantly talking about how, uh, you know, I don't have this kind of power. And June's trying to push her. Yeah, you do. You have it. You just got to take it. Mm -hmm. Not really. But I think we're going to see this women's place conversation continue through a few more episodes. Oh, absolutely. Just going to say that. I will say that. So a woman's place was one. We've already gone through reunions and power struggles. And I think the most important ones that we need to like identify is is an ongoing dialogue in the show between these three main point of views or mindsets about the world we live in. And we identified idealism, realism, and pragmatism. So what do you think is the most ideal? Who are the most idyllic characters in this episode? Or do they all wear that shoe at some point? I think June in the beginning wears very idyllic situations. Like, uh, she's like, I don't think Cora's hanging. You know, why wouldn't she be hanging? It's very idealistic to think that this guy who's, who doesn't care that you've just buried a Martha in the backyard wouldn't just be like, get rid of her because she could talk. I think it's very idealistic for her to be thinking about that. What about Sienna? <sighs> I don't know. I, I think it's a possibility, but I think she's just kind of like waylaid. She just just needs to think she's fronting. Think the idea of she's in the idyllic house because she's with the like the most influential commander, and it would have to wait and see. I don't know who her past commander was. If right. you know he was a bad guy, so she's taking this as a much better place. Okay. Um, who else is idealistic in this? I think in a little bit of a way that Serena is idealistic in thinking that her mother is uh, going to be sympathetic to her. And she would keep her secrets for her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that she wouldn't judge her or anything of that sort. Yeah, it's interesting that Serena definitely shows it. And June definitely shows this idealistic view. And it's not just the thing about Cora. It's, like, carried through until, I think, <laughs> I think... Until Lawrence pulls off her blinders, really. Rather forcibly. So there's a lot of idealism involved in that, clearly. 
those two characters, I think, display the three characters display it very well. I think it's interesting, too, that then realism, we get a voice of realism from two unlikely characters. And I'm going to say Lawrence is sort of it, but he's maybe a little bit more of a pragmatist in this regard. And then from Serena's mother, because neither of them seem terribly interested in holding up anybody's illusions in private about what's going on. Oh, absolutely not. They'll, they'll straight up just tell you anything that you need to hear, not that yeah, you really want fun. to hear. And I feel the same way very much about Beth. Yes. I, I, I see a great deal for her that she's just... Well, Beth just seems really capable of, like, distilling things down to, like, the most realistic possibilities. Mm-hmm. And she likes to keep things grounded in, in what is instead of what could be. Yeah, I mean, for somebody who works as a resistance, I'm guessing she's seen plenty of people fail. So she knows that the risks are really high. She knows the return is really small, but she also knows that it's worth doing it. So, like, she is putting herself out there, but she's realistic about what the chances are of people's survival. She was realistic about what she can expect from Lawrence, I think, is really important. Although, to some extent, it is June's idealism that does manage to get Lawrence to do a few things that, you know, if Beth had been left to figure it out, she wouldn't have done. Yeah, I could see it. Because Beth would have Beth would have said he'll never go for that. June in her bulletproof, idealistic, fiery, righteous wrath mode decided she was gonna push the envelope. And of course we see her paying for that almost this entire episode for having pushed it that far. And I think that's pretty good to see it that finally that, you know, she doesn't have the soft fallback like she did with, with Fred. She she yeah. has to learn. Yes. And then we see pragmatism. And pragmatism is very well displayed in the entire like last probably third of the show. I know a lot of people on Reddit were like really hating on Lawrence and saying he's an evil guy and he did all this terrible stuff. And I'm not saying the way he treated June was proper. Mm -mm. But for June, who seems to be really comfortable wearing masks with anybody she's with, just throwing something on her face that makes her appropriate for the context she's in. It's almost like she missed it that that's probably what he was actually after with her. Yeah, I think so. That he wanted her to perform, yes, but he wanted her to perform. He wanted her to be biddable. He wanted her to be a righteously indignant, she, but she didn't understand it was a game he was playing, not necessarily against her, but against the a house, right? Yeah. And he, so much the better if she was a little bit humiliated because he's angry with her. And she needs to learn how to temper her own anger. Yeah. She needs to learn how to keep it under control. And he wants that from her, I think, really clearly. So we see that. And then later when they're in the, they have that whole conversation in his study. Well, she tries to seduce him and he lets her think that's going to happen for a hot minute. And then he steps all over it. And then when he tells her, she gets mad at him and starts yelling at him and says, you know, you must feel like shit about all this stuff that you've done and you're a terrible person and all this, you know, it must be horrible to be you. And she gets in. Like, I don't see, I don't see him denying anything she says when she loses, finally loses her temper and lays her cards on the table. And instead of playing a game with him, she's honest in her assessment of his behavior and his psychology 
And since he said, you think you know people and you think you're good with people, then she gives him some bullshit that, you know what I mean? But what she really thinks is what she said. Yeah. I just... When she's angry. I think she also struck out, especially because of the... That whole background of the sickness thing. With her... With her, uh, with her daughter. Oh, you think? I think she was really striking back against that rather than, you know, really trying to get under his, get under there to learn about him. It was just, I'm going to get under this armor to strike it as hard as physically possible because it hurts to make you, make me sound like a bad mother. Well, and I think that's true. I think she did. I think it, it pushed her to that point, but she'd already had to have made that assessment about him. Mm-hmm. She just didn't say and it. She, right. And she wasn't using it. She wasn't using the information she already had to the best best of her abilities which he points out to her really clearly when he says you don't use your head and you're immature and you're not competent like he mean he tells her several times that she's not serious about what she's doing Mm -hmm. like even last week he was sort of implying that she didn't really understand the consequences of her actions and she didn't until she killed that handmaid killed that martha martha she got that martha killed and then it was like oh right and and he is just keeps putting more pressure on her to understand that if th- she's going to be in his house and he's going to work with her, she's going to have to start thinking. And it's something she's got to do. Her. It's a very good point that um uh that she has to deal with. Yeah. And if you didn't need, if you didn't get any of that from that, I think the following scenes are really important to note that his his level of pragmatism. We've heard from Lawrence himself say that he just wants the human race to survive. Mm-hmm. That he sees the fertility crisis and the environmental crisis and the rest of it is a extinction level event for humanity. And he wants humanity to survive. So he created this scenario, this situation in which if all these things happened, we would have to do the following. And that's basically what Gilead went with and he it was like she said you wrote esoteric books he came up with these things and never thinking he'd have to face this situation really and then he did and now he's in the unique position of having to decide who gets to live and die and it's it's gotta be hard especially with his wife being so admittedly against he is very much a pragmatist he is involved with the resistance he knows that it exists he's not turned in any of it i mean all of those people he could have turned over and would get them killed. And if it had happened in Warren's house, it would have totally, they'd have all been gone. Mm -hmm. So we know that he is sympathetic. We know that he was sympathetic to Emily in particular because of her intelligence and her ability to help others and help humanity survive all of what's going on. He sees the big picture, like the long, the long game. June's only seeing her game, which is to get her daughter and get out. I think slowly she's starting to understand that it's not just a fight for her to get her daughter and get out. It's a fight for everybody to get out of Gilead, like for Gilead to really go down and not just like go down in a flaming plane because she's angry at it, but like overturn all these ideas. No, absolutely. I believe so. So when he takes her out to that place and makes her choose or explains to her the situation, it really is a, a thing of pragmatism. Who do you pick? I don't know. Did you ever do this in college or in high school where they give you like case studies for people for organ transplants and then they like they would for an insurance company and then they ask you to figure out who is the best risk out of the 10 people they give you? 
No, we did it in boot camp. Okay, you did it in boot camp. So you understand, like, that is making those assessments. And that's exactly what he's asking her to do here. <laughs> you can only say five people. Out of all the people that are here, which of these five people are the ones that the world needs most? And it's worth risking everything for, which is super pragmatic, folks. Because somebody's going to have to die. It's unfortunately the way it is. Around. Yeah. Yeah. He can't, he can't just end it all. He can't just stop Gilead being Gilead right now. It's too far gone. But what he can do is figure out a way to come up with the right people to save so that when and if humanity survives and or Gilead falls, there's people left to do the heavy lifting that's going to be necessary for humans to survive after. It is. It's clear. He's trying to think ahead, but a lot of us may not appreciate his versions of thinking ahead. Well, yeah, he's an egghead. Mm -hmm. It's hard for people in emotional situations, which is the thing that he's pointing out to June is it's really hard in an emotionally charged situation to take a step back and use logic and problem solve and really think about what you're doing. So I think he's a really interesting character. He gets more interesting all the time. I think that if he continues this way with June, we're going to see some really interesting character development. And I hope so. Maybe we'll get something other than angry. Not that, not yeah. that I'm mad about her being angry. I mean, it, it, no, I'd be pissed off yeah. too. But she decided to stay at this point. Her being pissed off is on her. Mm -hmm. At some point, you have to take responsibility for putting on the big girl pants. Since if you decide you're going to take the hard road, then you can't get to complain about the so of the rocks in your shoes. I mean, at least I think so. So I just thought it was a really interesting episode on the whole. What did you think? I really liked it. I did. I can't wait to discuss the next one, but I thought this was a really good lead up. Yeah, I think it was it very is, good. Yeah. I, I missed Canada mostly. Yeah, I did too. I did miss Canada a bit, but it's good that we have these moments where we're like really folk hyper focused in on what's going on in Gilead too. I don't want to, you know what I mean? I think that's important because we need to do that. Yes. Because that's where the action's happening. Well, at least some of it. Good portion of it. Good portion. I thought it was good. Reddit it was, was good. fun and it, yeah, it was. Reddit was fun and interesting this week. There's a lot of really interesting good posts. I have to say, I want to make a, a little shout out here to a group of people that I have encountered on Twitter that are in the fandom that I just <laughs> think are freaking amazing. So there have been some just really silly posts between some of us. It's. We're going to have to, me and Kay are going to have to figure out some kind of way to work in the move thing. But um, I want to give a sh shout out to Serena and Offred and Off Matthew <laughs> and Commander Lawrence and the voice of Gilead and Aunt Lydia. And I, I'm missing somebody. Off Warren. These people on Twitter, you guys, are hilarious. You're killing me. Absolutely. They've been really great all week and um, reblogging our stuff and interacting with me quite a bit on Twitter because I'm the one that apparently is the only one who's going to deal with the Twitter account. I can barely take care of my own Twitter, honey. <laughs> you see how she is? And I have like eight to take care of because I have ones for people that I, my clients and mine. I mean, you, you've seen me run mine. I, I update once a day. <laughs> I do. I know you do. She's she's wonderful anyway. But yeah, those guys are fantastic. Absolutely. 
We have some silly conversations. So if you guys are on Twitter at all, you should definitely give us all a follow because it just, it, the insanity is. I may not write for it every once in a while, but I will comment and I do read it. Yes, they're really funny. I called us the, what did I say? We were, we were folks from the cow colonies. <laughs> rubes from the, rubes from the cow colonies because where we're at. And they all thought that was hilarious. And then there was a convers- There was some bad moo puns. Might have been. So let's see. Uh, replying to blessed, blessed be the be moo. moo. Yeah. And then Serena sent back moo the Lord open. It's just gone a little far. <laughs> uh, it was pretty funny. Anyway, so I want to give them a shout out because they're, they're absolutely great. great. Oh, yeah, they're. There is some really good stuff on Reddit today or this week too. I'm liking seeing things now that I can read that I I haven't spoiled myself for. I have to pass up so much of what you guys write. I know. And then I have to go back like a couple days later when it's like, okay, now I can read it. And then I'll read it. And I'm like, oh my God. This would have been so great so, to look at like a couple days earlier to prepare myself. Right? I would have sure could have used this for the podcast, but wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I can't. I the Aunt Lydia stuff, guys. I I'm not there yet. Be good to <laughs> us. There's so much. It's it's terrible. We want to get in there. I see, keep seeing these Aunt Lydia posts. I'm like, what's going on? What's going on in there? Um, she's haunting us, right? I did. I wanted to mention this one. I really like this post about the hazardous waste in the colonies and the question about whether or not they were from nuclear um, reactor power stations melting down or if that was from actual tactical nukes being used. I thought in the books they were pretty, the book, it was pretty clear that that was from tactical nukes being used. I'd have to reread to remind myself. <laughs> when we get to our reread, we will definitely check that out. So you were saying there's a new Bruce Miller interview out there? It's what I've heard. We might have to look for that later. Yes. Indulge ourselves and in that. So that's where the pill thing came from. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We'll have to check that. I've seen a couple other interviews, but I've been concerned about spoilers, so I haven't really been reading any of that stuff. Oh, kind of the same, yeah. You'll have to accept my apologies, folks. But at this point... In our recording, Kay and I both were going on about 20 hours straight being awake. And the conversation devolved to the point where we just decided to pull the plug on recording. We'd gotten through all of the main themes for the show, of course. And we had done a little bit of discussion of our week in social media as pertains to The Handmaid's Tale. But that was all we had for this week. We hope to see you next week. Have a good one. And blessed be the fight. And that's a wrap on another episode of Handmaids and Harlots, the podcast. We are indebted to EDM Mond for use of their song, Memories, Innocence of a Girl, available through Audio Library. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please smash your like button wherever you find us. Follow us on Twitter at HandmaidsH, where you can make comments, share news and thoughts, or email us directly at 
handmaidsnharlots at gmail.com. And for essays by either myself or Kay, check out and subscribe to our WordPress blog at handmaidsnharlots.wordpress.com. Until next time, peace be with you.